Welcome to the Music Business Podcast. Whether you're an aspiring music business professional or a seasoned vet, every Thursday, the Music Business Podcast brings you the trends, tactics, and insights from some of the world's brightest minds in music. I'm Jordan Williams of EQT Management. And I'm Sam Heisel from Knox. We're not teachers. We're entertainment industry professionals, drinkers, wannabe comedians, and most importantly, fans. Welcome to the show. What's up, Sam? You're... How you doing, man? You I'm good? great, man. Very excited to have a very esteemed guest, Mr. Andrew Keller. Andrew currently runs a company called We Few Group, which helps uh, manages artists, helps brands with brand campaigns. He's really just become a Swiss army knife of, of execution and getting amazing shit done in the music industry. Um, and it's kind of brought this under this umbrella of his company, We Few Group, right now. Prior to We Few Group, he was the VP of A&R at Universal's Capital Music Group. He also used to be at A&R Columbia. Um, while there, he was responsible for signing and developing a diverse group of different artists, including Cruella, Dylan Francis, Zhu, um, St. Lucia. list goes on. Super grateful to have had him on. I personally love this episode. What did you like the most about it? Yeah, I thought it was great. I mean, as you guys are here, he has a really long history in the music industry, which is, and he has a long history at one company, which is not a lot of people have. You know, he was able to organically rise the ranks, which you guys will hear about. Um, in a way that a lot of people admire, you know, including myself. You know, he started as an intern when he was 17 and then didn't leave until he was 30 years old and, you know, had a bunch to show for it. So i um, super glad we got to get him on the episode. Yeah. Well, without any further ado, Mr. Andrew Keller. Andrew, what's up, man? How you doing today? How's it going? It's going very well. Very excited to have you on. How was uh, fresh off the holidays? Do you enjoy your break? Fresh off the holidays, had a great break. Nice. Um, watched a lot of movies, caught up on music that you know I hadn't necessarily had a chance to listen to. Yeah. Um, went through all the top ten lists and you know kind there of got is. into stuff that I hadn't had a chance to really dig into for fun. That's the thing about the music industry. I feel like it's over over uh, Christmas and New Year's Eve. People like refuse to work. So even if you want to work, it's like oh, nobody it's, nobody's available. So you might as well just read a book or watch a movie or something. You know, totally. It's <laughs> it's full like culture catch up time. Right. Exactly. And exactly. I'm a culture junkie. So for me, you know, it's I just want to absorb as much as humanly possible. Right. And where are you from originally? I'm born and raised in New York, uh, in oh, Manhattan. Okay. Um, cool. Dope. Dope. Yeah. So Upper West Side. There it is. So very excited because I think you have a really great broad array of experience in the industry from both the management side to the A&R side, doing A&R at a very high level at some incredible labels, um, to now also working on some of the kind of the brand partnership side and helping brands stay culturally relevant. Um, can you just give a little bit of a kind of 10,000 foot view through your kind of journey and the different experiences you had, and then we'll start to really peel away? Sure. Um Look, I think of myself as a professional music and, you know, now kind of professional entertainment fan. Um, that's kind of always been my point of access. That's always been, um, you know, where I start everything from. Um, I grew up, like I said, uh, in New York. And uh, as a result, was really lucky just as far as the amount of access to culture that I had. Mm -hmm. Um and also freedom, you know, like it was very easy as soon as you're, you know, old enough to ride the subway by yourself, you can basically be anywhere and at anything. Right. Um, and uh, I was also fortunate enough to, to have a really good fake ID, which, you know, <laughs> I, which literally came in, comes into play in, in the story of how I ended up working in music. But, um, you know, basically I was just a music head and I was luckily um, able to be exposed to everything. Um, I mean, really everything from, you know, with, within the same week. You know, probably my freshman year of high school, I would be going to see, you know, a pop punk band at the Knitting Factory or CBGBs. And then, uh, you know, some, I mean, legitimately kind of small band. And then I would kind of go sneak into a club somewhere and see, you know, some form of electronic music. And then someone at my school's dad would have some hookup and, you know, have passes to Jingle Ball to see Britney Spears or whatever it was. And, you know, so as I was really kind of across the spectrum and kind of just totally exposed to absolutely everything and, and on purpose by design. Like, that's what I loved. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I realized it then, but what I really loved was subcultures and kind of different worlds and seeing things um, come up out of them. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, I turned that into, you know, I, I found out, you know, probably when I was 16 or so that A&R was a job. Um, 
I found that out by walking to Barnes and Noble one day and there's a book by Bill Flanagan called A&R. I had no idea what it stood <laughs> for, but the book cover was a guitar, an ashtray and a bottle of whiskey. I was like, this looks cool. And, you know, <laughs> next, you know, it's basically the fictionalized story of a bunch of A&R guys. And uh, as soon as I found out that you could make money, you know, I, I always knew back, backtrack. I always knew that um, I wasn't an artist. Mm-hmm. I never wanted to be, you know, in the foreground. I was actually listening, doing my homework on, on you guys and listening to the uh, interview with uh, Derek from RCA, who I <laughs> love. <laughs> yeah, who I yeah, love. Yeah. But he said something, I think he said, you know, everyone in the business starts by wanting to be an artist. And I was like, no, not not me. I'm kind of the exception to that rule. Right. Um, I never had any interest in kind of being that center of attention. So once mm-hmm. I found out that there was a way to work around that, you know, that there was a business side of music, um, that was all I cared about. Yeah. Um. I had absolutely no contact in the music industry. I was not kind of lucky enough to be born into a family of, you know, entertainment industry people. Um, what I did have was a mother who owned a preschool. And uh, by coincidence, uh, she had had uh, in her school um, the children of a guy named Jeff Jones, who's now at Apple Records, but for a long time had been at Legacy at uh, Sony. And that was the closest I had to a contact in music. And I kind of <laughs> asked my mom, if I write this guy a letter, will you just pass it along to him? And um, she was kind enough to do so. And he was kind enough to open it. Um, <laughs> and I still credit him with, you know, really getting me in the door. And he, you know, basically the best he could, you know, the best he could do was say, you know, I'll have HR try and, you know, meet with you. Mm-hmm. I got there. I was going into my senior year of high school. And um, I had no idea what I, and I wasn't going in for an A&R role. I was, whatever I can do would be fantastic. Right. And, uh, you know, the first obstacle was they told me that they could only do it for college credit mm-hmm. or for some sort of school credit. There was no internship program in my high school. Um, but somehow I think I convinced the principal or my dean or someone to write a letter saying I was getting some sort of credit. So I'd met that criteria. And then um, they told me that there was a program they were thinking about starting as A&R internship um, but I want to go meet with the guy who was running that. And, you know, so of course I want to do that. And that was, uh, at Columbia records. Um, so I get brought upstairs to this office and it says president of Columbia records on the door. And we go into this really big office and this just like 24 year old dude with tattoos walks in and there's like a PlayStation, and a big screen TV. And I'm like, this is, a big, well, what is going on here? Um, and we start talking and, um, I found out later that that guy was not the president of Columbia records. That was the president's assistant. Um, <laughs> who is still to this day one of my closest friends. Um, he's an amazing guy. You should probably have on the show at some point named Alex Hackford, who's the head of music for PlayStation. Oh, wow. Um, nice. Now, but at the time he was, you know, I think he was assisting Will Botwin and was going to be uh, promoted to an A&R guy. And he had had this idea to start an internship program basically using college kids as scouts. Mm-hmm. And um, so basically, you know, his questions were, what do you listen to? And I rattled off a bunch of bands that I was loving who, you know, also their demos were on the president's desk. I mean, these, these were bands that were kind of already starting to bubble, but, you know, really, again, in a, in a small way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, bands I knew the guys in and, you know, they were kind of friends or friends of friends. And um, so I kind of, you know, used that to my advantage. And then the only other question was, do you have a fake ID? Um, can you go to shows? And I was like, that's not a problem at all. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I was hired. And so I spent that summer, um, doing nothing but, you know, being in the office, absorbing as much as I could, hanging out, listening to music, going to shows, um, you know, and really kind of learning what working at a label really meant from, you know, there, there was no making copies there. I, I lucked out in that sense. Right. <laughs> um, and then they offered to let me come back in the fall around my high school schedule, my senior year. So I did that. And then, um, I mean, really from there, Alex uh, left to go to Sanctuary, and so I started interning for him there a few days a week. And then the other days, I was still going to Columbia. Um, and that program ended up uh, succeeding. Um, another really good friend of mine who I interned with, uh, a guy named Andrew McGinnis, um, brought in an artist uh, through this kind of intern scouting program. The artist was John Legend. And uh, Jeez. basically that he's signed to Columbia and while we were still interning, the album came out and uh, had an incredible first week. And I think that proved the concept that interns can be valuable assets as scouts. And so they hired Andrew and myself and one other person as um, 
junior A&R scouts. I think we were getting like a hundred bucks a week, but we got a business <laughs> card, which was really all I cared about because yeah. it kind of legitimized what I was doing. And, and from literally from there, I spent the next 13 years at Columbia. Wow. Um, so I was, that was when I started there when I was like, you know, 17. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was there through the time I left when I was 30. Wow. Um, you know, but that's, that's kind of the overview that's of the Columbia that journey. Period. And then you became the SVP of A&R at Capital. Then yeah. I became the SVP of A&R at Capital. Um, went over there for three years. Um, the whole time that, you know, from the time I was leaving Columbia, my, my mind started kind of just spinning out as far as what else I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw the A&R landscape changing. Yeah. Um, I saw, you know, it wasn't just the A&R research thing, which I'm sure we can come back to and talk about. And, um, it wasn't just kind of this transition into research playing a larger and larger role in A&R. It was really, um, kind of the shift going from being inside of the building in a lot of ways to outside of the building. Um, when I started, um, even at 17, so much of what I wanted to do was make change from the inside. I wanted to infiltrate, you know, the reason I wanted to be at a major label and not be the indie rock kid at, you know, a cool indie that was putting out most of the stuff that I was listening to, um, (laughs) was because my feeling was I wanted to Get in on the inside and fuck shit up there. Can I say fuck on this? Yeah, oh, great. Please, I want, no, yeah, absolutely bro. not. Great. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I want to fuck shit up from the inside. That was really important to me. Um, and you just started kind of feeling that that was less and less possible. I think um, I started noticing even at you know, kind of the end of my time at Columbia that managers and the artists themselves, as they should, were kind of having more and more of a – kind of control over everything, not just, you know, not just the meat, the whole kind of overall plan. And I kind of started seeing a lot of my job being more coordination than something creative and exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't think that that was something I was going to, that wasn't um, sustainable for me that my wasn't. and, And also I had been there for so long that, you know, I didn't feel like I was learning. Yeah. as much there were still great opportunities there was amazing music there were great people but i didn't feel like i was getting as much out of it i, I feel like i'd gotten a lot out plus i had just i had grown up there yeah you know that place to me was that was basically college and grad school mm-hmm. and right. the most and there were my family you know they were the right. most amazing people um and it just i was kind of i'd had it and so you know the Point in my saying that was that was around the time that I started thinking, okay, what else is there outside of the label world? What else do I want to do? Um, and I still went to Capitol Records, um, <laughs> which was also amazing. And that to me was kind of going to Harvard Business School in some ways. Yeah, yeah. You know, that was kind of being able to come in there in the role that I had, working with some of the people I got to work with, um, was really amazing. And I, again, I got to work with great artists. I got to meet a ton of people. Um, you know, I got to continue working with, um, someone who's very important in my life and my career. Um, a gentleman by the name of Ashley Newton, who is the president and, uh, EVP of special, he's the president of Capital Records, EVP of special projects for, uh, Universal Music Group. Uh, he had been the president of Columbia Records before that and kind of been my mentor for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, he went over to Capital shortly before I did. And, um, you know, so, so that, you know, also allowed us to keep working together and that's always a nice thing to kind of have that continuity with people. And there are, you know, just a bunch of great people over there who, you know, I, I think are fantastic. But at the end of that run, it was time to, you know, basically just go off and do anything I wanted to do. I think for me, a big part was the fact that I was 17 when I started working at a major corporation and, <laughs> I never felt like I owned my brain and my ideas, you know, yeah. things that yeah. came up. If I, if I had an idea in the middle of the night of an app I wanted to do or whatever it was, you know, it, it didn't matter. A podcast, like I couldn't do it. Right. You yeah. know, like they, I didn't have the freedom to go do that. And um, that always bothered me. And so, you know, look, I, I started something called um, We Few Group. You know, it's a purposely kind of vague name. Um which comes from Henry V from the St. Christmas Day speech, you know, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. Because mm-hmm. to me it was, oh, you know, this whole thing was about kind of having fun with people who you care about. Yeah, and, yeah. and the general mantra for, you know, people are like, what do you do now? You know, post-label, my answer is I get to do work that excites me with people I like. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that kind of knows no boundaries. Right. Um, you know, 
I don't know what things will fall under that necessarily. You know, there's there's so many. I didn't think I would be doing stuff in the iced tea space. I didn't think that I would be, you know, I, I didn't know I would have a publishing venture with, you know, a good friend. You know, th- it, there's just so many things that have come up. Um, but the fun part is that I can say yes to the things I want to say yes to and no to things that I don't believe in. Right. Right. That's awesome. So um, in your experience, and this is obviously a, a very broad question, but you've you've obviously had a lot of experience specifically in the A&R space. What does a good A&R look like to you? I think that's a great question and a completely impossible to answer question. Because well, I means, think it means a just great, you. you know? a, well, but I think a great A&R person comes in so many different forms. I uh-huh. think it really depends on the artist and what their needs are. Right. Um, you know, I think there are some artists, you know, there's someone said to me at one point that there's an A&R person doesn't get paid more to metal. Yeah. You know, like if an artist comes in and delivers you a great album, you can just say thank you. Yeah. Um, there are other artists that need you in the studio. There are other artists that want you in the studio, but don't need you there. There are some <laughs> artists who want your feedback. There's some artists who need it, but don't want it. You know, like I think, and sometimes that's finessing those moments and making sure that you're doing what you want to do. And sometimes that's understanding that you don't need to do that. I think more and more now, the importance of the job is really being able to rally the troops inside the label. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, not necessarily the glamorous part of the job because it's not outward facing. Um, and everyone wants to go, oh, you do A&R. That's so cool. You're out with art. You know, a lot of the most important parts of those jobs are making sure that everyone else is doing their job. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not just the, the rest of it. You know, I don't want to discount any of any of the creative parts, but um, I think the most important part right now, um, especially as artists have more and more of their own vision and are coming, you know, I think especially now as artists are getting signed with more more frequently with records that are already breaking in some respects or, you know, with fan bases that already exist, those artists are, you know, some of them are more open than others to kind of collaborating. Um, and by that, I don't even mean with other writers and producers. I mean, just with their A&R person. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and again, sometimes that's a necessary thing and sometimes it's not, but mm-hmm. I think when you have those situations, what's important is, you know, getting through, uh, the label, right? Like, you know, you could sign an artist who is super buzzy and broke a song, you know, had a song break on TikTok, and you do a huge deal and a few weeks later, something new and shiny comes along and maybe the artist that you signed is, you know, slowing down. It's not performing as anticipated and people have kind of moved on to the next new and shiny thing. It's still your job to go and make sure that not only is there a plan for your artist, but that everyone else is on board and right. that, you know, that you're keeping everyone else, you know, excited. And um, it's a lot of politicking in that sense. You right. know, it, it really is. Well, can you speak to, because whether or not, you're in that specific scenario where you're trying to politic internally inside a label and get support. Like just that notion of like being able to play to the powers of bureaucracy and keep other people excited about your project. Can you speak about your experience as to how you were able to maintain and build momentum and excitement I around the projects you were working on? I think it's like it begins at home, right? It begin, And by that, I mean with the A&R person. I think if you don't have a genuine excitement around something, you probably don't belong working on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the most important thing is, and at least this is for me, this, I can only really speak to my experience right. and how I function. Right. Um, I believe when you sign an artist or when you manage an artist or when you do anything with an artist, you're taking on a tremendous responsibility. Forget about the money you're spending or your job you're putting on the line or whatever that kind of stuff is like, you know, for an artist. I think outside of probably their child or their mother, there's nothing more important to them than their art, right? Than their music. And you're mm-hmm. taking partial responsibility for that, mm-hmm. um, right? You're convincing them to sign away, you know, their kind of rights and control to it in some respects, depending mm-hmm. again, depending on the deal, whatever, whatever. Right, right. Um, you know, and I don't think that's something to be taken lightly. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it's having that enthusiasm for the artist and being able to protect them and protect their vision and make sure that, um, you are doing what's in their best interests um, for the longevity of their career, I think really. And, and I don't think I realized this as much when I was in the middle of it, but looking back on it or having artists of my own now that I manage inside of labels, um, you know, I think there's this interesting thing for the A&R person because they are 
the point person for the artist, but they're the point person for the artist who is on the payroll of the label. Um, and, and there's a conf, there's an inherent conflict there. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and I think sometimes the most, and I think that's part of how I knew that I wanted to do stuff in management was that I, you know, I saw that a lot of the times I was also kind of taking a management role on because a lot of times I wanted to, I was kind of not towing the label line. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, for me, it was about, I really just care. And I think, look, I think most people at labels mean really well, I think. And I genuinely mean that. And I think most people at labels really do have the artist's best interest in mind. But I also think that at the end of the day, a lot of the time, the artist has to win because it's theirs. It's their name on the, you know, it's now on Spotify, right? It's not my name. It's not the, you know, the label's on the right. P line. The, the artist is, you know, the one who needs to go to sleep every night with that. Right. Um, and be proud of that. And that's, you know, always what's mattered to me. So what do I think a good A&R person is? I think it's someone who can help with what the artist needs and be there for them in whatever capacity is necessary. Do you feel like the artist ever has brought you in too much where you're like, um, you know, I work with consultants and I think, you know, one thing that's always funny that I hear is they think that we're a little bit, they think we're on the management team. So then, so then requests come in that are kind of crazy and it's not necessarily stuff that we do. It's like, you know, so do you think that towing that line has ever gone too far where you're like, oh, you know, obviously it's not a big deal or whatever, but it's like, oh man, I wasn't expecting to get that request or caught you off guard or I mean you just been down for the cause because that's I've always, you know? I mean, my, my thing is always like what it's a team yeah yeah. You know, like, <laughs> you're part of the team I don't and again I think and this is not just a podcast of why I I'm not at a label currently yeah but yeah. <laughs> I don't know that I under I don't know that I I see things as concretely as as kind of labels have departments yeah you know like I don't think the A&R person has a lane mm-hmm. you know it's not like you know I, I think mm-hmm. There are people with greater expertise in certain areas, but I think everyone's it's got to always be all hands on deck. And I think to me, the, you know, the answer to what is a great label team is people who leave every night having at least accomplished one thing for their artist, Mm. you know, and I think the goal should be at the end of every day, have I, you know, I don't care how big your roster is. Have I done something today to move every single artist on my roster forward? Yeah could be setting up a session. It could be just making a phone call, sending a link to someone telling, you know, just doing something. Yeah. Um, because these are people's lives we're playing. That's a with. good, that's a great metric. That's a great metric. And I think as soon as you get a lot of artists on whether, I think that's a good thing to think about in management too. Yeah. If you get a lot of artists in management, just like, what have I done today for this artist, that artist, you know, you have to, like, I, I think again, you know, you're, you're playing with people's realities. So you you spoke on how you like a lot of different genres and you've worked with a lot of different genres. Yeah. What have you learned that it applies to all genres and then what have you learned that only applies to one or two or the thing that I think applies to everything is the fan comes first. Mhm. Um not as far as I I don't mean that like make the art that the fans want. I mean the f- Fans are there that this exists for the fans and fans are the same across genre. Um, And I think what's cool right now is just the total blurring of genres and the amount of things I can't. And people are like, oh, what what kind of artist is I have no idea. (laughs) I have I have no clue what so many artists are, you know want to tag themselves as right now. And I think that's hugely exciting. But before, you know, I think when there were clear delineations, right, when there was metal and emo, pop punk, screamo and EDM and, you know, whatever, you know, pop, pop, you know, bubblegum pop and country, whatever, you you know, when you look at all of those spaces and I'm a live music junkie and, um, I look at a lot of things from the live space and I love music festivals and I think they can be great barometers of where things are. But I think what struck me the first time I went to ultra when I started working in a bunch of dance music stuff was how similar it was to warp tour. Um, 
and what struck me, you know, and how similar Warp Tour was to Ozfest, and how similar, you know, all of these things, you know, and and look, Stagecoach is the same as Coachella, you know, it's the same. It's literally they're using the same footprint. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think those fan, yeah, the T-shirts they're wearing are different. You know, the you know marks that you know they put on to kind of differentiate themselves visually are different. But I think those fans want this, a lot of the same things. And I think those, and that's why I was saying earlier, like what I love is subcultures. I love seeing those scenes grow Mm -hmm. and what happens after they grow is, you know, they kind of morph into just general pop culture. And suddenly you have, you know, I I think bands like fallout boy, for example, or my chemical romance or any of those bands, you know, they, rose to the top of a specific genre and now cross into pop and not just to be on pop radio, but you can tell their influence, right? Like, you know, then there's a little peep song, you know, the posthumous little peep song has fallout boy on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think, and that's decades later, you know, in this whole new subgenre, I think it all kind of then bleeds together. So I think that's kind of what's exciting things I've learned that work in one genre and don't work. I think, I, I think, Dance music has a lot of intricacies, mm-hmm. um, a lot of intricacies. <laughs> uh, and, and I'll be really frank. I was really pretty ignorant to most of the dance space when I ended up in it. Yeah. Um, I My journey to the dance space was totally bizarre. Uh, it was really because I heard this song online one day um, by a group called Cruella and uh, – Really what struck me about it was, to me, it was almost more like pop metal with drops. Um, And, you know, from there, I didn't know that I, you know, really anything about the dance music space. And I ended up signing this act and that, you know, that was the world that they lived in and they taught me a lot. And then through that and kind of the total immersion in that world, met a bunch more people and uh, kind of players and captains of that scene and uh, was lucky enough to work with a bunch of other great acts in that world. But it was never about, I want to do EDM music because there's, there's an EDM thing happening. It was, right. I heard one thing and then I heard another thing. But, you know, that world still, you know, is not something that I could ever call myself an expert in. Right. When it comes to the, the A&R side, how much of it is your own personal taste versus seeing what is trending and, and and even just growing to evolve your own personal taste to be accepting and have a good read on stuff that might not necessarily be your initial cup of tea? I think there's a difference between loving something, getting it kind of intrinsically and innately, and wanting to go home and listen to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um I kind of use – so seeing what's trending, seeing what's – you know, from a research point of view, from whatever point of view, I like to listen to everything that's happening. Um, I You know, just in general, just have a breadth of knowledge and awareness. And from those things, you know, there's things I love and things I don't necessarily love. Um, I don't think I've ever worked on something or even gone after something that I didn't love in some mm-hmm. respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, my barometer doesn't make me feel like I just got punched in the face. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that mean? I think Slipknot song Eyeless makes me feel like I got punched in the face. I think Adele's uh, uh, someone uh, someone like you makes you feel like I got punched in the face. <laughs> I think you know I, I, it doesn't matter what it is. It, it does does this make me feel something immediately? Right. Um, that's what I care about. Yeah. No, I love that. Are there? I mean, you mentioned Cruella. What are some of the artists who's who had this this ascent that you were a part of um, that looking back was one of the most exciting journeys in your career? Um, Cruella was definitely a fun one. <laughs> um, it, they really were. Um, just because we were doing something that felt boundary pushing at the time mm. in a different way. First of all, because they were – you know, for, there was all this stuff happening at EDM. There were so many eyes on this EDM space and the girls were legit DJs, um, but they were also incredible songwriters and vocalists and no one was really doing that. Mm-hmm. And just even trying to explain to people that, yes, they're going to be behind the decks, but they're also going to be coming out and singing and yeah. some of their sets not. And, and it's like, I guess now it's not as 
crazy, but at the time, like trying to talk to, you know, publicity about TV bookings or you know, people did like trying to wrap their heads around that was really tough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and those girls are uncompromising and, you know, there were a lot of, you know, and they were very, I think I learned some interesting lessons from them too, just about this, you know, their desire to really stay true to who they were and to never try and alienate or betray their fans. Their yeah. fans were so important to them that there were a lot of opportunities they were totally fine passing up because it could, you know, it, it wasn't about losing the fans' approval. It was about, you know, what what does this mean to, you know, what does this mean for us? Are we those people? Um, so that was a great one. Um, what do you think made, uh, I mean, because they've become very big and definitely had a great ascent. What do you think were some of the key inflection points or key actions that you took, they took that really helped them get to the stage of kind of success that they reached? I think a lot of it was education. Um, internally, you know, within a label, externally, um, education for myself, educating uh, the label, just kind of figuring out how we were going to break this act. Mm -hmm. um, again, that you had a really strong-willed act. You had two young, really smart and hungry managers. Um, and you had, you know, depending on what era of Cruella it was, three or two people who, you know, again, were really ambitious, were getting a lot of great opportunities. And it was trying to figure out how to balance everything and how to um, you really kind of break down uh, that this wasn't just a, you know, this wasn't just an EDM thing. This wasn't a dubstep thing. This wasn't a pop thing. Um, and trying to kind of balance all those things, right? How do you do the top 40, you know, radio shows, you know, in, in the summer and also, play a bunch of the huge dance festivals and be taken really seriously there. Um, which again, all of these things sound, you know, this is what happens every year now at, at those mm -hmm. festivals, but that was not the case at that time. Right. Um, you know, there were tours that we turned down. There were, you know, there were just things that happened that were also, you know, and also just even simple things, right? It was how do you bring radio people out when the artist isn't going, you know, the, the, tours the artists were doing at the time were, you know, proper nightclub shows, right? Yeah. And people, their set times sometimes were 3 a.m., right? <laughs> you know, those were, you know, challenges as well. Yeah. Um, that was challenging for me sometimes. Yeah. I didn't want to be out at 3 a.m. Yeah, I know. I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, it's even worse in the, like, the the house techno world that I'm in sometimes yeah. with clients where the, their set will start at literally, like, 6 a.m., I mean, like, if you get into it, though, man, I've been in some of those shows. If you get into it, it's, it's, time it's incredible. Yeah, yeah, that time but, I mean, I'll, I'll never forget having to talk to, you know, the chairman of the label and every department head when, when I uh, worked with an act called Zoo. Oh, and yeah. His first ever U.S. show. I mean, this was incredible. The fact that they pulled this off was absolutely incredible. But the shows were two nights. Um, I think it was over Halloween at a warehouse in Bushwick. The only way to get the tickets was to wait online at opening ceremony and get the vinyl. When you got the vinyl single, the ticket in it uh, had the location. Damn, um, the ticket in it had the location. And <laughs> the show started at 2 in the morning. That's what I was. I remember that. remember hearing about that. Yeah. And it was – oh, and when you – it was one of the first times ever that they did that thing where they take your phones and put those in, the, in those yonder pouches. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah, yeah. So there were also no phones. Um, which again, so, so you're now talking about how do I convince everyone that, Hey, this is a great, cause culturally it was an incredible idea, right? Yeah. Kids were talking, it was for the kids. It was for the fans. Yeah. yeah. But you're also dealing with the industry side, right? You're also dealing with, I have a boss and a bunch right. of people who are excited about this artist who spent money to sign this artist in a right. competitive deal who, you know, now want to be able to bring people out and make sure this does right. There's a level of expectation of yeah. what can come next. Now right. you're saying, so you want me to go get people out at a 2 a.m. show <laughs> in Bushwick around Halloween. Um, oh, and their phones are going to be taken from them. Cool. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, so those were struggles. But again, you know, I don't, I don't think they or I would have ever changed that because right. the, oh, and, you know, and you go, you know, this is kind of peak, you know, social media really becoming 
an incredibly important tool, right? And you're yeah, like, yeah. oh, so people aren't going to be able to share photos, right? yeah, because <laughs> yeah, yeah, there yeah. are no photos, right? Right. right. Um, so the, you know, if nothing, you're like, this is so cool. This is going to create such a moment, but mm-hmm. no one's going to be able to share it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, the, it was for the right reasons. Like they did it because that was for the fans. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, again, that's why it goes back to it's all about the fans. Yeah. I'm a fan. I want you know, I I still want the bands that I love to do things the way I as a fan want to see them. Right. For sure. Right. Now, two things I like there. One, I think, is it's a show, but they took this completely reimagined perspective as to how they could create this really unique experience to not only build hype leading into it, but also at the event itself. So I think for everybody listening to it's like, yeah, I mean, there's make music, release the music, have shows, tour. I mean, there's so much opportunity to innovate and come up with unique concepts that people are, just aren't even really thinking about. So to hear that story is really powerful. Oh, but I'm sorry. I forgot the other thing. And no one was going to see his face. <laughs> there you go. He was going to be covered by a screen the entire time. That's amazing. It could have not been him at that I, point. <laughs> like, no, not only can nobody have their phones, but it, you, he's behind the screen. So even if you find out it's not him, you can't, you can't, you can't record it. There it is. Okay. I think the other thing is the um for zoo. What do you some same question for Cruella? But like, what what do you think were those turning points or those things that um really helped that career blossom the way it did? Zoo was a different beast in the sense of Faded was a huge song internationally yeah. by the time we got involved. Okay. Um, and you know his process was really unique. I mean, the first time he ever played a show ever, he was direct support at a giant festival in Australia. Um, you know, so it was like, it was already kind of kicking (laughs) off. Um, but you know, I, I think, uh, you know, both of those acts, what were the turning points? I think for zoo, I think for zoo, it was the Skrillex and they record. I think that was a huge turning point. I love that record. Um, cause I think it gave him a different, I think everyone knew that him and Skrillex were friends. I think, um, you know, none of that was surprising i think he had gotten all of the cred and cosigns imaginable but i think putting out a song like that that was kind of a different vibe to anything he had released before mm-hmm. just kind of showed people how ambitious he is right and kind of how willing to take chances he is yeah that's amazing um so you were at a label for a really long time guilty <laughs> you were there during like the massive layoff period between like what like 2004 and 2010 or 2004 yeah. 2012 or something like that how did you do it what are some of the things that you learned in order to to stay at the company in order to in order to make thrive? as little money as possible <laughs> um no sir i mean look so many of those years like i was so under the radar in a sense right uh, i was an intern i was a junior scout i was an assistant i was a junior a and r like as you're coming up, like I was, I don't think I was registering on headcount. Um, but look, it was definitely, it was the weirdest thing. Like I, you know, I'll never forget. Like you would just, the, the, the phrase was, I hear it's Friday. And that would be kind of what was whispered around the office, right? I hear, I hear it's Friday, meaning layoffs are going to go down this Friday because they would always happen on a Friday. Damn. Um, and you would kind of just it's always. It's like a horror movie. Like people I mean, like, it was. I think you didn't know who, you didn't know who was going to survive. Uh-huh. Um, you know, there, there were a bunch of people who I loved who, you know, got let go. But in some ways, one of the, you know, almost everyone really landed on their feet. Mm-hmm. Was, you know, everyone landed on their feet. But I think within, you know, the industry, everyone would always kind of move around. Um, and what was in some ways for me being young at that time helpful was as people would get let go or leave one place, they would go somewhere else and it kind of expanded my network. Yeah. Um, so selfishly, that was you know, kind of this interesting thing because all of a sudden I would go catch up with someone over lunch and then go meet a whole bunch of other people of their new coworkers. And, right, right. Um, you know, that was that was definitely kind of a positive part. How did I survive? Again, like it was kind of, I, I put my head down and did work. Um, but I really think it came down to I was just lucky enough to not be on the radar. <laughs> right, right. Um, so I'm not going to ask you what your discovery tactics are. But I will ask you what's advice for artists in order to get discovered, in your opinion. So I'll tell you my discovery tactic. I mean, one of the, the the thing that I think is my best discovery tactic is people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I love people. Uh, I talk to tons of people. <laughs> um, 
genuinely, um, whether it's, you know, people in the industry, friends, friends of friends, people online, um, you know, whoever it's kind of like, I'm kind of always looking to talk to people who, you know, whether they're in the industry or outside of it and just fans of anything. I love information. I love, um, hearing about things. And I think the best way from, you know, I think almost everything that I care about that I've found out about in a meaningful way, really at some point has been through kind of people I trust. Yeah. Um, you know, there are some exceptions, but for the most part, it's, you know, I look at things for them. I look at a lot of things like here. And again, this goes back to why I'm doing things now, the way I'm doing them is who are people I like and trust and believe in? Okay. What can we do together? Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, so sometimes that's someone who I meet who's managing something, you know, and then I would go, okay, can we sign it? What can we work on together? You know, things yeah. like that. It was never about, um, I'm rarely the guy. I was never good. I always envied whether it was on MySpace or on SoundCloud. People are like, oh, how'd you find that? Oh, I was just browsing on SoundCloud and like yeah, clicking. Yeah. I've never once found <laughs> something that I care about just clicking, you know, or on MySpace. It was like, oh, I clicked through their top eight friends and who are their friends or their. Like, I've never, that has <laughs> never been something that works for me. Um, the, probably the closest thing was there was a website for a while called We Are Hunted, which I miss desperately because I think it was one of the best curated sites ever. Um, but that was a great kind of aggregator. It doesn't exist. It was like kind of a souped up hype machine. That was awesome. Mm-hmm. Other than that. Um, but as far as how artists can get discovered, I think artists should, and, and I think they are worrying less and less about getting discovered by labels and AR people. And um, I, I think artists should do what artists want to do and what they believe is right for them. I think there is no, this isn't a cop-out answer. I just genuinely, you know, there are some artists who rise to the occasion by becoming the biggest artist in their backyard and really breaking locally. Mm-hmm. There are artists who break on Spotify. There are artists who break because, you know, someone else uses a song of theirs in a TikTok. Like, you know, there are artists who break because someone from the New York Times finds them and writes about them. You know, there's so many bizarre ways for things to be discovered now. Mm-hmm. I, I think, look, again, the only, the thing that I would hope that artists do is try to build sustainable careers mm-hmm. um, for themselves right? Um, and not need a label or not need – and I'm not saying they shouldn't have a label. Mm-hmm. But I think it's not about how – it should be about what are the things that you are going to be able to do to help your art pay your bills right? and let you tour or, you know, or not pay your bills if you just want to do it as a hobby or if you want, you know – if it's not about touring, but you want money to make the videos and execute the videos that you want to do, like figure out how to do those things, mm-hmm. right? That to me is much more of an exciting conversation than how does an artist get signed? How does an artist get on this festival? Mm-hmm. Ultimately, like there is no more, there there is no equation for that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do your research, trust yourself. Right. You know, find the things that excite you, find your community, find the people who are going to listen to your records. Right. What's it been like diving deeper in that realm, going from kind of being on the label side where there's tons of scale, there's all these different artists, all these different moving priorities to kind of moving on and really starting to manage and have your own kind of roster of artists. Um, how has that shift from kind of now being a manager versus being an A&R, how do you enjoy it? Is it, it's a different type of politicking? Or? Yeah, look, I love it. Um, I absolutely love it. I think, you know, everyone wants to joke me, about, oh, you know, is it so hard being a manager? And it's like, no, it's just, you know, it, at the end of the day, the mission statement on that side of it's the same. Um, at least for me, it's, you know, work with artists and help them achieve their goals and mm-hmm. their visions and, and help grow things. Um, which again, I think any member of an artist team, that should be the ambition. So, um, no, I, I think it, that, that transition has been really easy. It's been really refreshing to kind of have to hustle in a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, and kind of just figure out again, things that otherwise either would have been done for me because another department would have handled it if I had signed artists at a label or, um, you know, things that I was kind of not able to do because, again, that wasn't, quote, unquote, my job. Right. Um, you know, even sometimes just, like, randomly staying up super late into the night, like, finding a random blog that might like an artist mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of mess- just emailing them, being like, hey, check this out. Yeah. Just stuff like that where it's really ha- – I-, I love the hand-to-hand combat yeah. aspect of it. 
Um, you know, that's not at the end of the day what's probably going to you know make or break things. But it's kind of I like that freedom. Right. I like just you know. I like it too. One of the main th- reasons why I ended up in management is because I used, I was interning at like three different companies. I was like like this music publishing. Okay, I'm not really too into it, but I get it. Then I interned at a label. I was like, this is this is cool, but it seems like the buck is stopping too early. Like I, I have to I have to do certain things, and I can't do other things. Like I can't help fully. And I was like, well, I kind of like telling the story. I'm gonna get into PR. And then you start talking to the artists, getting to know their story, but then you only do their PR. So I was like, all right, well, what can I do where I can just like actually do whatever? And it was it it just ended up being management, you know. But I also think everything falls on management, no matter what. So whether it's a big task or a small task, whether it's menial as fuck or you're having a million dollar meeting, it all falls on management. And that's also like what I like about it too. You can't, it's hard for me at least to be like an arrogant manager because yeah. you're like eating shit all the time. You know what I mean? That's the great part about it. You know, you're eating shit and you popping bottles. No matter all what it is. I mean, you can, look at the, you can look at the biggest manager. I mean, that you know, they're, no matter how big your staff is at the end of the day, if you're the manager, if you're, you know, you're, you're dealing with it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But that freedom, that freedom is definitely really important. And yeah. why people do it, I think it's why, it's why I do it for sure. So, so Harrison Rebler, one of our first guests on the podcast who connected us, I was like, we got Andrew coming on tonight. Thanks again for the intro. What's this man know better than anybody else in the world? And he said that when it comes to international, you're the you're the guy. Can you talk a little bit about your experience? And first of all, just by like, I think even before we started recording, you were excited about the release of like a global top 10 chart and this opportunity to really be strategic in helping artists break internationally. Can you talk about what drew you to helping artists scale internationally? And then we'll dive into kind of the how. Sure. Um, so the the kind of flashback to how I got interested in this was really simple. Um, there were two things. One is I love traveling. Um, I just, for me, and this goes back to, you know, why I love, you know, the holiday time and being able to just read and catch up on movies. I'm a firm, firm believer that your output's only as good as your input, mm-hmm. right? What you're exposed to, what you read, the information you take in, you're, without that kind of stuff, you're stagnant, you're stale, right. mm-hmm. um, and you're not going to do, you know, the exciting work that I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I love just being exposed to stuff. Right. Um, and when I was in high school, in college, um, I was really, there, there was a scene coming out of the UK. There was like kind of this indie guitar band scene, um, that I loved. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Libertines are still, you know, one of my fa- absolute favorite bands. And, and um, you know, basically I would fly over. I would kind of save up money and fly over to the UK and go see shows and uh, go record shopping and go just, you know, look at seven inches. I would get NME. One of the one of the perks of being a junior A&R scout at Columbia Records was I got an NME subscription, um, <laughs> which I think probably would have cost like $500 a year to get imported from the UK here at the time. And I would literally just – that was my Bible – um, but a lot of the stuff you couldn't hear, you definitely couldn't buy here. Uh, iTunes was geo blocked. So I would be buying, like, I would have someone in the UK buy me like an iTunes gift card that I, you know, I had, iTunes I had a was fake geo blocked. iTunes was geo blocked. So if it was, it if it was yeah. Oh, oh, like, so the, so if it was, if you were on iTunes in the UK, if you were a UK band that didn't have a US label yet, your stuff wasn't available in the US. Oh, if you weren't distributing right. to the US. Got um, it. so you, you know, things weren't coming out day and date like they mm-hmm. do now. So I would, I had like a, I had a fake UK iTunes account that I'd have <laughs> gift cards on. Um, and I would go record shopping over there anyway, like, you know, because you would find these things and they just wouldn't come out here. Mm-hmm. And that always puzzled me in a weird way. And, and, um, so as I progressed in my career, um, at Columbia at the time, you know, there was a lot of A&R people, mm-hmm. um, and it was harder and harder. Like there was, you know, the, everyone was kind of looking at a lot of the same things. Right. And I think that mixed with the fact that a bunch of artists that I was working with at the time were doing really well internationally, which gave me an excuse to be able to say, Oh, I want to go over with them. You know, I want to go to the UK with them. I want to go to Australia with them or you know, right. wherever with them. Um, led me to be able to interact in a different way with a bunch of the other territories. Mm-hmm. And, um, through that got, you know, again, got to meet a whole bunch more people who could tip me off to great things. Right. And, um, so it gave me kind of my own lane mm-hmm. and it also, uh, got me to see a lot of places that I otherwise wouldn't have necessarily gotten to go. Yeah. 
And so I kind of became Columbia, this de facto international A&R guy, meaning I would mostly interface with the UK and Australia and pick up records mm-hmm. um, of stuff they were signing or, you know, occasionally help them close something that was competitive that they needed to know there was a U.S. home for. Right. Um, and that was really it. But I, I really started looking at the fact that, like, things were only coming out in their local territories. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then suddenly it was changing, right? As Spotify was coming to the forefront, like things were co- starting to come out more and more at the same time. Yeah. Um, but no, but, it, but no one was looking at them. Right. Um, and I think kind of the best example was, you know, Lucas Graham who were passed on, you know, but there was a band from Denmark and no one really paid attention um, because no one necessarily thought that, a band from Denmark was all of a sudden going to have a huge song in the U S right. Um, you know, and there's a bunch of great acts from Denmark. Um, (laughs) but really it was the fact that like people were just not paying attention Mm -hmm. and people, and also there was this kind of feeling because of the way a lot of, without getting too boring, intercompany royalty structures set up for international releases, there wasn't really an incentive for other territories to take ownership of part of the A&R process. So if an act is signed out of Denmark, for example, a lot of the time you just release the album that would have been put out in Denmark here. You're not going, oh, you know, it might work better for, you know, for the U.S. doing X, Y, or Z. Can we get a different song? I don't know if actually this single is the right first single. Let's all talk about it. Right. Right. Um, that always really bothered me. Yeah. Um, so when I was going over to Capitol and I had the opportunity to kind of, you know, help shape what my role was going to be, um, the thing that I said I really wanted to focus on was international. Yeah. Um, Universal Music Group has this incredible international footprint. There's also a lot of artists who will do, you know, local deals, you know, and just for their territory, or they'll do a deal for the world, but carve out North America. There are all these opportunities <laughs> on the table that people weren't looking at. And that was to say nothing of emerging markets, right? That was mm-hmm. to say nothing of China and India. That was to say nothing of uh, the K pop space. That's say nothing, you know, all these things that were going on mm-hmm. um, that people just weren't looking at. Yeah. Um, or re- or not looking at in a meaningful way. Right. right. I think, for example, if you want to look at China or India, you know, any of those things, people love to say, oh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity in China. But like I think very few people take the time to really understand it and to really yeah. learn about those markets. Right. There are people – I mean there's uh, another guy you should probably have on your show, a dude named Andrew Spalter, who in, in some ways is you know the most epic international guy. Um, he was a manager and he ended up, you know, he had an artist who was doing very well in China and he was spending a lot of time there and he's now basically started this company where all he does is help artists interface in China. (laughs) Um, you know, most recently he had like Will Smith, you know, doing stuff over there. Um, but you know, I think there's all these different markets that have different areas of expertise. And I was sitting meeting someone and people go, okay, so like, what are we going to do with Asia? You're like, Mm -hmm. Asia's a that you can't say what are we going to do with Asia? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Yeah. You know, like, um, You know, so I think to me, it was really about learning what was meaningful and mm-hmm. learning about how to understand these different markets, right? If you look at, we'll go back to using Denmark as a, you know, an yeah. example, you know, they have their own radio, you know, obviously their own radio stations, they have their own award shows, they have their, there's different right, metrics, there's, fest, there's, you know, independent festivals. And, you know, to me, it was about going into each of those territories and actually meeting all of those people, not just the label people, it was about meeting the festival bookers, it was right. about meeting the radio programmers that, you know, playlisters, the, you know, whoever it was. I mean, I sat down with like a student journalist when I was right. over there once because, you know, they had a blog that was, you know, really on everything. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And it didn't matter to me that it was a small country. It mattered to me. It was if the music coming out of it, there was stuff that was going to come out of it that was great. I want to know about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think people take enough opportunity, you know, take enough advantage of opportunities to collaborate with artists, you know, mm-hmm. um, who are far, you know, if you're looking to break in different territories and doing kind of specific versions of song for, you know, with different, you know, different artists on them. Um, and, and again, that kind of became part of the international role at some point became um, constantly being hit up about putting collaborations together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, well, it was a lot of stuff in the Latin side of, you know, can we get some, can you get so-and-so to jump on this Latin record? Right. Um, and, and I love doing that kind of stuff. I'm always happy to help mm-hmm. um, with those kinds of things. I think, again, what a lot of people don't often pay attention to, a lot of times it's, here's a huge record that's exploding in one space. Can we also get the biggest artist, you know, in this other space on? And it's like, we can start earlier than that, right? Yeah, like right. you can start with artists earlier on and help them grow. Right. 
and kind of take a holistic approach and find the right artist and not just like who's the biggest name. You know, I get random emails constantly. Can you get, can you help get Billie Eilish or Post Malone on this song? It's like, no, <laughs> why? Like, a, a, no, I don't have, you know, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's, that's, you know, good luck. Here's, right. here's all the information for people who you can contact to ask that, but that's not what I do. Um, you know, but also like it's just, it, it's kind of very in the box. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, you know, so my international thing is, I genuinely don't believe that there should be any boundaries, you know, and, and borders around music. And I think, you know, that's becoming less and less of a real issue, thankfully. You know, you're right. looking at, you know, the rise of K-pop, which I think is just one small piece. But I think it's pretty huge when you have, you know, acts like Super M having a number one record, um, you know, number one album. I think that that says a lot. I mm-hmm. think, you know. To me, what's interesting is you have BTS, you know, in, in the K-pop space, who've kind of taken the crown of being like the biggest K-pop group and the right, you know, K- biggest right. K-pop boy band. Yeah. Um, to me, what will be the most interesting is when you have an act, you know, like a BTS or, you know, in whatever genre who mm-hmm. just is the biggest act in the world. Yeah. Right. right. That to me becomes much more interesting than being the biggest of a sub-genre and making a point because it's kind of an anomaly. It'll be... Yeah. When do you get something that just where it doesn't matter, you know, how it's portrayed? This is just what it is. This is just big, right? Yeah, that's amazing. I think it'll be. It's. Um, I love the part you made about the point you made about part not necessarily always shooting for the the big stars too. I mean, I think that that works at a certain scale of artists, but I think a lot of times. I mean, similar to yeah, to the extent that you can be early and identify different trends and. Focus on building with those guys as they grow, you grow. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite things is when there's two artists I know separately that are both bubbling separately and they get together. Not like two massive people, but you're like, wait, they know each other? This is yeah. amazing. Like, this is great. It's like you guys are act like it feel, you really feel like you're on the ground floor of something at the same time that two artists are bubbling and you get to see them collaborate for the first time as yeah. opposed to being like, I don't know, somebody like somebody huge. Like right. if Drake and Nas never got on a track and they were on a track. I just I think I think it'd be like pretty awesome, yeah. right? Yeah. But like I don't know, JPEG and Slow Tie getting on a track yeah. would also that be really would be awesome. Epic. And yeah, exactly. You that know? would be absolutely epic. <laughs> exactly. Can we make that happen? Can the powers to be please make that happen? <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe. But look, I think I think collaborations are the not so secret weapon of breaking artists right now. I think being able to kind of be in the middle of those Venn diagrams and kind of cons I think it costs like nothing to release music anymore. Right. Right. I think the, I think there's no amount of good music. If you've got good music, hopefully great music, I think it should come out. And I think, you know, the more of it you, I think there, you know, all of those plans and and ideas of, Oh, we can't have too many records. I don't want to compete against each other. We can't do this feature because we have this song going at radio. Like, I think the more things come out now, the better. I think those are, it's just, Unfortunately, um, everyone right now is just absolutely infatuated with the new and shiny and fresh. And Mm -hmm. um, if a song's been out for a week and it wasn't on New Music Friday, people are like, oh, well, the song is dead. It's like, well, (laughs) well, the song isn't dead. But if you're going to be that kind of closed-minded about it, then just keep releasing stuff because your best chance of discovery is having something out there for people to discover and then be able to have them go back and find more stuff. Right. Um, I mean, when you think about, you know, how many tracks Billie Eilish released – you know, and even the collabs and some of the collabs, you look at them were with artists who are much smaller. Right. Um, not necessarily at the time, but, you know, when you're looking at it, like she was just open to doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, it's again, they've always got to be the right artist. It's got to fit the art. It's not a marketing tactic. But I think if you're an artist who can go into the studio and collaborate with people, it's the most exciting thing. I mean, um, you know, I learned a lot watching. I have an artist I manage named Rents, and uh, he's constantly – you know, hopping on other people's records, people hopping on his records. He goes into the studio with someone and they go, Oh, we made a record together. And I'm like, Oh, like you co-resident. No, it's both of us. And I love that. <laughs> but I love that. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, and then you, again, you watch them come up together. Right. Right. And as a fan, that's like a magical moment, especially when they both get big. And there's nothing better than having, you know, being, I think there is no more powerful kind of cosign and discovery tool than being turned onto an artist by another artist you like. Yeah. It's kind of like when uh, J. Cole and Kendrick, about seven years ago, people were like, if that happened, oh my God. When the, that album they thought was going to come out, 
I've never seen how I'm getting more hype that they both the artists never even talked about. <laughs> like they they never said anything. And they was like, oh man, it's coming. Oh shit, it's gotta, it's gotta. <laughs> you know? But, you know, it's the power of discovery and, and collaboration at the same time. So I think it's I think it's the best. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, Great. man. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a fun conversation. Thank you for having me. Where can people find you online, if anywhere? Twitter. Uh, at Andrew D. Keller. Uh, my Instagram is private. It's just photos of my dogs. Nice. Dogs are cool, though, man. Dogs are Love awesome. Dogs. I, that, I, don't, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think everyone wants to see those. Um, <laughs> but yeah, my, I'm, I'm on Twitter. Find me there. Boom. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much, man. Awesome. Thank you. Man, that was cool, man. That was super cool. Yo, Andrew. Andrew. Andrew knows what's up. Yeah, I mean, I liked, um, he's sort of a unicorn in terms of labels, right? Like a lot of people got laid off in a certain amount of time in, in the music industry. And, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't cocky about anything. He was like, yeah, I was kind of flying under the radar when I did that. But at the same time, you know, he had to be a good person to make it that far, you know? So hearing, uh, hearing that, hearing how he's been able to sustain his career for so long. And one thing I thought was crazy is that he said he's not the type of A&R to find artists on SoundCloud or Spotify or you know, the traditional channels that people assume, people assume, at least when they talk to me, people that don't work in the industry or people that maybe have just started think it only comes from sitting in front of a computer all day and, and listening to new music on these playlists. And I'm, for some a I'm sure that's what they do. But for him, he has a trusted group of friends who send him good music and that's all mm-hmm. he needs, you know? Totally. I thought that was a super interesting perspective that me and you not necessarily have come across on his podcast so far. So. For sure, for sure. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you all for listening. Super grateful. Um, another week, another podcast. We'll see you. We'll see you shortly. You'll hear see us. See you guys, man. Have a great week. Peace. Peace.